The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Good morning to each of you. It is just wonderful to see you this morning. It's already been a great morning. I had a wonderful time in our Bible fellowship time with the young adults, and uh, I look forward to opening God's Word with you this morning. We are in our last letter to the churches, and if you are uh, fifth grade down to kindergarten, you can line up in the back there, get ready. My son was the first one at the door. My wife is teaching. You know it's going to be good. And so all you kids line up in the back. You're in for a good time. You're going to learn how to become fishers of men today. So if you want to make your way back there. And the rest of us are going to turn to Revelation. We're looking at the last letter to the churches, the church of Laodicea. The brunt of all the jokes this church is. Um, when we were talking about what we're preaching, and Cliff is just confirming the schedule with us during one s- staff meeting, uh, he comes to me, and he, I said, Church of Laodicea, and me and Justin both look at each other and start laughing. Why? Well, because it's Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Uh, there's websites out there that talk about all that's wrong with the contemporary Christian church today, and likely it's going to have Laodicea in the title of the blog. It really is the, the brunt of all the jokes. It is Why? Because it's the lukewarm church. No one wants to be the lukewarm church, and we're going to talk about what that means for the church of Laodicea and what it means for us today, an important lesson from Jesus about the state of the church and what to be aware of. And we're going to find out that this passage has very specific application for us, an implication for our church because of where we're located. And you'll probably be able to pick up on that pretty quickly as we get into it. So let's do that. Cliff's already read the passage, so I just want to jump into it and talk a little bit about the background and where Laodicea was located. It was located in the Lycus River Valley together with Heropolis and Colossae. And it was probably first given the gospel by Epaphras, who was one of Paul's companions, and we read about that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 13. And it was a prosperous city. Historically, we know this. It was the seat of a famous school of medicine. It was, had a great commerce. It had great commerce. It had great manufacturing. And all of these things kind of combined to make it a very wealthy city. In fact, it was so wealthy that a small illustration will help us understand how, in fact, prosperous it was. In AD 60, there's a pretty massive earthquake that struck the area, and several towns and cities were just decimated. And so the Roman government provided aid to these various cities so you could rebuild and make sense. Laodicea either was denied aid or refused it. We're not entirely clear, but either way, they didn't need it. Their financial reserves were such that they didn't need any help from the Roman government to rebuild their city. That's how wealthy and prosperous Laodicea was. And Jesus introduces himself to this church at Laodicea as the amen, the faithful and true witness in the beginning of God's creation. And just just as he does in every other letter, these are not throwaway phrases. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, this sounds like a good way to introduce myself this time. I'll try this one. I haven't used this one yet. I I introduced myself this way in chapter 1. I haven't said these yet. I'll go with these ones. That's not what Jesus is doing. 
These have specific application to the passage at hand, to the letter at hand, to the concerns at hand. And Jesus is introducing himself in a way that ties into the rest of his message to the church at Laodicea, as we'll see in a moment. But let's first look at what he is referring to. He is the amen or the amen or the amen the faithful and true witness. That word amen even means truly or verily. Jesus uses it often in the Gospels to, to affirm strongly what he is saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, I say to you. He is the faithful and true witness. So what is being emphasized here is the reality that Jesus Christ is reliable He is faithful to witness to God and His will and His revelation. Jesus Christ stands stalwart, strong, bold, unwavering in the face of temptation, in the face of compromise. He's not persuaded by any man. He's not persuaded by any kind of intimidation. He stands and speaks the truth. He is unswerving. He is the faithful and true witness par excellence. Is He not? I love to read the Gospels and see Jesus confronted by the Pharisees as though they were ever going to get him, threatening him, threatening him with death, threatening him with social social ostracization. No, it doesn't affect Jesus. He is staying on course with God's mission, and he's going to witness to God's word and his revelation no matter what. He is the faithful and true witness. And as we'll see, it's an important, there's an important reason for why he introduces himself this way to the church at Laodicea. I'm going to argue that the problem in Laodicea is that their church, that the church there had become ineffective in its witness. They needed a word from the faithful and true witness because that's exactly where they were failing. But God, Jesus also presents himself as the beginning of God's creation. Now, again, if you ever had a knock at the door by some folks who wear the nice little badges, they used to at least, I think they still do, some Jehovah's Witnesses like to seize upon this verse and say, see, Jesus is here telling us that he is the first of God's creation. He is, see, he's the beginning of God's creation. That's not at all what Jesus is, is claiming here or saying here. We need to reckon with the, the, the whole context of Revelation before we draw any kind of conclusion like that. That kind of interpretation that you get from a Jehovah's Witness or anybody else who tries to downgrade Jesus' nature as fully God will, will, not use, no, will not understand this phrase in the greater context of Revelation where Jesus is presented as, for example, the first and the last. A phrase used only for God in the Old Testament. Jesus is the first and the last. We see this in the first chapter. He refers to himself as the omniscient Lord of the church. He is taking on the very prerogatives and roles and nature of God himself. As he describes himself, he's taking on the, the, describing himself with the same qualities and prerogatives as, as God the Father. He is fully equal to God. No diminishing in his deity due to his full manhood. And that's what the context of Revelation gives us. So to draw that conclusion, to say that beginning of God's creation means that he is the first of God's creation, is to ignore the entire context 
of Revelation. Secondly, however, it's best to understand this phrase is not referring to some sort of chronology, but is Jesus referring to his role in bringing about the creation. In other words, understanding this word beginning or the the Greek word translated here as beginning as source, origin, ruler. He is the one who has brought about this creation. He is the one through whom God brought everything into existence. (laughs) Far from being a claim that he is the beginning of the creation, Jesus is actually stating very clearly that he is God, a very God. The one who created the universe, the one who created all things, the one through whom God the Father created. So if you ever get a knock at the door, or if you ever bump into a Jehovah's Witness on the street, or anybody who tries to downgrade the, the deity of Jesus, remember the context of Revelation and who Jesus has already presented himself to be. Now you might be asking, why does Jesus present himself this way? And we're going to see again, this is not a throwaway phrase. Laodicea, the church at Laodicea, needed to be reminded of exactly who Jesus was. Not some sort of exalted creature, but God of very God, the Lord of the church, the judge of all, the first and the last, the resurrected Lord Jesus, who is God of very God. Well, what is Jesus' assessment of this church? What is his assessment of the church? I mean, it's, the church is, it's, it's become famous over the years because Jesus says what? He says nothing good about this church. He doesn't one good thing to say about them, unlike the other churches. Not one little shred. Couldn't you just say something nice about someone there? He has nothing to commend this church for. He says in verse uh, verse 15, he says, I know your works. So this is a church with a name. It's a church with a claim to Christianity. They've got something going on. They've got some activity. They've got some works. They're doing something. And Jesus knows about it. As we've already said before, this word know means intimate knowledge. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He can see through veneers. He can see through surfaces. You're not fooling him. I'm not fooling him. He can see through it all. And this is the assessment that he makes. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's exceedingly graphic language, isn't it? I mean, this is the language of rejection. I mean, it couldn't get much more graphic. When you're thinking about eating something, if you've, ever, if you've eaten something this week or this month, that either you have tasted and you'd be like, oh, that's terrible, and, and you spit it out, or something that's not set well with you, so to speak, and you vomited it out, you got sick. What that is signifying very clearly for everyone around you is that you reject this particular food or this particular drink. That's what this is saying. Jesus is saying, I am about to reject you because you are, as he says here, lukewarm. This is graphic. This is serious. This is Jesus speaking to a church. I'm about ready to completely reject you, to spit you out of my mouth, to have nothing to do with you. I don't want to ingest you. I don't want to taste you. You presently are not tasting good, and so I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, to vomit you out of my mouth, to spew you out. Well, why? Why is he going to do that? Why is he going to do this? Well, he says it's because they're lukewarm, but what does it mean that they're lukewarm? Now, this morning, if I would have surveyed each and every one of you as you came in today, it's likely that 
a lot of you, many of you, at least a few of you, would have said that you understand Jesus to be saying here that they're lukewarm in that they're in the middle. They're neither fully on board with Jesus or they are neither are they fully in the weird world. They're in somewhere in the middle. They've got one foot in the world, one foot in the church. Their affections are lukewarm. They can't make up their minds. They want both. They want religion and they want the things of the world. And if I would have also asked you, what does it mean that Jesus says, would that you were either cold nor hot, what would you, you would have likely said or may have said that this means that Jesus wishes that they were one or the other. Make up your mind. Either be hot for me, on fire, zealous, or have nothing to do with me. Quit wearing the mask. Quit pretending. And this is a legitimate interpretation. I, I don't... I don't um, toss it aside flippantly. This is a legitimate uh, interpretation, and this is a common interpretation. The reason why you would have, when I surveyed you, you would have said this is because this is a common interpretation of how to understand Jesus' language here. I think, however, that the, that the context yields a more compelling interpretation. Now, granted, Jesus uses this word cold elsewhere, like in Matthew 24, to refer to a time when, in, in towards the end, when all kinds of trouble is happening and, and tribulation is occurring, that people's love is going to grow cold. And Paul in Romans talks about us being, never being, uh, always being zealous, and that word for zeal is, uh, has connotations of boiling and heat and fervency. And that kind of interpretation, man, it can really preach, can it? You can come in, you can say, listen, stop being on the fence. It's either Jesus or nothing. Quit faking it. And we know that Jesus hates religious hypocrisy. And so we, we have some reasons to, to interpret it this way. And that's why this passage has been interpreted this way so often. I want to offer you an interpretation that I think more accords with the context of the actual passage. And this is always how I'm encouraging the young adults in our class. You don't have to have a PhD in theology. You don't even have to go to Bible school. You know what you need to understand the Bible? The context. Isn't that encouraging? That should be encouraging. So we're going to look at the context. And I think I'm, the context is going to yield a more compelling interpretation. Follow me here in verse 17. Jesus has just indicted them for being lukewarm. We want to know what lukewarm means. We want to know what it means to be hot or cold. I contend that Jesus is not referring here to heat or cold as though he wants them to be zealous or reject him completely and not play games. The reason why I argue that is first, watch what, how he speaks in the rest of the passage. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy, me, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, right, may be rich and uh, uh, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve for your, to anoint your eyes so that you may be see. So that you may see. Verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So ask yourself, if Jesus is saying when he says, would that you were either cold nor hot, if that is the case that he would rather than just go completely into the world and not wear the veneer anymore, why is he compelling them to repent so strongly and offering them, offering them every incentive to do so? 
Why would he say, I would that you were either cold or hot, and then go on to say, well, actually, I want you to be restored in your relationship with me. So I think context lends us more to the idea that Jesus is saying something else here than suggesting that he would then have, have them either completely for him or completely against him. What is he saying? Well, interpreters agree that here in Laodicea, there was access to water via an aqueduct. It was really the only way they had access to water. They were far away from two separate water sources. The water source in Hierapolis was a hot water source, and it had actually, the historical records say that it had kind of medicinal effects, and it could serve medicinal purposes, and it was kind of famous for that reason. And then the waters in Colossae were very cold and life-giving and refreshing. And by the time any water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. But what was it? What did lukewarm mean? Lukewarm meant that it did not preserve either quality of the hot or the cold. It had become ineffective. It was no longer effective to serve the purpose of either hot water or cold water. And so what Jesus is saying here, and which is the reason why he is coming to them and saying, I am the faithful and true witness, is because they had compromised their witness and were no longer effective in it. They had works, but their works were so tainted by, a, as we'll see in a moment, a spiritual pride and a spiritual independence and a spiritual self-dependence that due to what we'll see in the context as abundance and affluence in their culture, that they had become ineffective in their witness. They were no longer copying the faithful and true witness who stood as the Lord of the church. They were lukewarm. They were no longer effective. And so Jesus is ready to spew them out of his mouth. This lukewarm water that would come down to Laodicea via this aqueduct, it was known to be quite nauseating. And so it was something that you would be ready to spew out of your mouth. So given the context, given the historical background, I commend to you that Jesus is here referring to ineffectiveness in this church. They have works, but their witness has become ineffective. And we have to ask, why? Why? What was the cause of this ineffectiveness? Well, you can see it in verse 17. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. What had happened here? Well, you might remember my sermon from... uh, the church at Thyatira, you might remember there that there were these trade guilds that in order to remain, keep your financial stability and keep your livelihood from these trade guilds, depending on what trade you practice, you had to engage in some sort of idol worship to maintain your clientele. And it's possible that that same kind of thing was happening in Laodicea. It was simply the way economies, the economy worked at that time. You had these trade guilds. And so there's clearly an economic situation happening here. What Jesus points out, however, is that this economic situation was causing something very specific in their spiritual lives. Verse 17, you're saying, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing. And I take this to actually have reference to actual physical material wealth, because that's the way these words are used throughout Revelation. The words for wealth here are used throughout Revelation to refer to actual physical wealth. 
If you turn back just for a moment to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, when, when Jesus is talking about the, the, talking to the church of Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty. He's talking about actual poverty. But then he responds and says that you're, you're rich in the way that really matters. Here, it's the flip side of that. They are wealthy with material wealth, but they are utterly bereft of spiritual wealth. Jesus is not only referring to here their spiritual independence that they had developed over time. He's referring to the cause of it as well. Namely, that they had been infiltrated by compromise due to the surrounding affluence that they were experiencing. That's why he's using these words rich and prosper. And they have developed an attitude that they were in need of nothing. So they probably were no longer concerned to pray for their daily bread, to cry out to God for their need and provision. They didn't see themselves in utter desperation for Christ every single day, like Smyrna, because you need bread, you just go buy it. You need clothing, you just go buy it. You have everything you need right in front of you, and so now you have need of nothing. And that creeps into one's spiritual life because no longer do you need to pray for your daily bread. No longer do you need to rely upon Christ for your needs. And such is the case at this church. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. And so you can almost hear already, you can almost hear it, can't you? The warning to a church like ours located in the wealthiest region of the wealthiest nation in the world? It's very easy to allow financial independence, so to speak, financial prosperity, to lead to spiritual independence in a disregard for Christ. And what does that do to our witness? What does that do to our witness individually, and what does it do to it corporately? It's possible that your effectiveness and your witness has become lukewarm and nauseating because you have, because of your great wealth, become attached to it and mistaken financial abundance as the work of your own hands and a sure sign of God's blessing. The warning to CBC this morning is to beware of how easy it is to allow material abundance to blind ourselves to spiritual realities and open us up to spiritual compromise. Why? Because in order to remain as a faithful and true witness, you must be willing to what? Lose it all. And the church in Laodicea doesn't appear as though they are ready to lose it all. So they're losing their effectiveness. But we also want to think more broadly, don't we? Think about the contemporary Christian church the contemporary evangelical church today. Don't be fooled into thinking that massive budgets and lots of activity equal spiritual effectiveness. It's not the case. It's quite possible that those with large budgets, elaborate programs, and all kinds of activity going on have actually compromised 
because they compromised on the truth because they fear loss and persecution and therefore have failed to preach the truth from the pulpit in their small groups, on their website. How easy is it as once you've gotten used to affluence in the area that you live and in the church that in which you participate to then begin to become afraid of that loss and to compromise and no longer preach the truth. There are pl plenty of churches with this very thing happening right now, today, this Sunday. Despite all their programs and activity, they are as effective as tepid, nauseating water. There can be all kinds of activity going on, and yet there's a lack of effectiveness, eternally speaking. Well, how does Jesus counsel this church? How did Jesus speak to this church? It's important that he would speak to them because of what he says right after he uh, explains how they thought about themselves. They think they are rich. They think they have prospered. They have need of nothing. And here I think you have both the, the blend of the, the physical and the spiritual so that they are both financially independent and spiritually independent. They don't see their need for Christ. Sure, they are a church and sure they're doing works, but when it comes down to it, they're not depending on the Spirit, depending upon the Lord. And they claim to have need of nothing. And this is the problem. They don't realize what reality actually is. They are blind to reality. Their financial abundance and their position has actually blinded them to their spiritual condition. And it is this. You are wretched. You are pitiable. You are poor. You are blind. And you are naked. Jesus is answering every point at which they thought they were doing well and says reality is, is you are in dire straits. It doesn't look good for you. It is a bad situation, despite how well everything looked on the outside. And it just makes you shudder for a moment to consider in how many churches this is occurring. And it makes you, it should make us step back and say, oh Lord, would you protect us from the blinding effects of spiritual pride that can easily grow in the soil of affluence? Jesus counsels them, though, the wonderful counselor. I love it how he says here, I counsel you. It's an important word for us, right? He diagnoses them very specifically, and it's a hard word. But he doesn't just leave them there. He's going to counsel this congregation very specifically. And how is he going to do it? Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich. What kind of rich? Truly rich. See, in this environment, this economic environment that they were in, they had, over time, mistaken what true riches really were. And Jesus counsels them to buy from him true riches. See, Jesus isn't against riches. He wants you to have the real kind. Him, God, eternity, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, enjoyment of him forever, a new heavens and a new earth. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may be seen. What is this? What is he talking about here? Well, I, I suggest to you that each of these things are references to 
those things that would bolster and help and feed their faith. So this gold refined by fire, it's difficult to know exactly what he's talking about. But given what first uh, Peter says in first, uh, given what Peter says in First Peter one seven, I take this to be high quality faith that perseveres through trials. Infinitely better than an easy, comfortable faith pampered by every material blessing and untouched by the troubles of life, something that they were probably used to at this point, is a faith that is tested and shown to be pure and brings one to heaven. This is the kind of faith that will present itself as a what? A faithful and true witness. To have a faith that perseveres through trial, through loss, through poverty even, like the church in Smyrna, is infinitely better than all the pleasures one could buy in this earth, with all the ease that one could purchase on this earth. Jesus counsels them to buy from him gold refined by the fire, that they may be truly rich. And in white garments. So they may have had physical gold that they could buy from the merchant. Jesus counsels them to buy gold from him. They may have had beautiful garments in their closets by given, uh, or purchased from the local weaver. But Jesus instructs them to buy from him garments, white garments. What is this? So that they could clothe themselves. What is this? Again, these are, these are, some of these things are tough even for interpreters to figure out exactly what Jesus is s- suggesting here. I say this is likely to, referring to garments of righteousness or garments of salvation, how it's used elsewhere in Scripture. In Revelation 3, 4, for example, Jesus tells the people of Sardis that one who perseveres in the faith will be clothed in white garments. The metaphor of garments or robes is used throughout Scripture to signify what we need to be dressed in in order to inherit heaven. Now, how can Jesus talk this way to a church? This is interesting. If this is what garments of, uh, means here, garments of salvation, garments of righteousness, remember he's addressing the whole congregation, so it could be that there were some in this congregation who were in fact in need of salvation. So Jesus instructs the entire congregation to clothe themselves, clothe themselves in white garments. It could also refer to, however, it could refer to believers in the church who need to renew their faith in Christ's righteousness as the grounds for their salvation. See, it's Christ's righteousness that we need to be robed in in order to be covered from our nakedness and our shame. And this church had forgotten that. They were no longer focusing on the spiritual riches that they had in Christ. They're focusing on the, the temporary riches they had in the Laodicea, and they had forgotten the riches that they had in Christ's garments of uh, righteousness. And for that reason, they were standing naked and full of shame. Only when the congregation had shifted their faith in their riches to Christ and his righteousness would they become effective in their works and in their witness. Again, if you are relying upon and leaning upon what you have in this world, your witness will topple the moment that is threatened. But if you have eternal riches and garments of righteousness from Christ himself, and that's what you're leaning upon, then your witness remains strong and firm and immovable. 
Thirdly, and this is answering that Jesus is referring here now to this, this eye ointment, which, which is, has to be a, a reference to the, the, the local uh, school of medicine that was there. They may, have had, they may have had plenty of eye ointment that they had purchased from the local merchants. But Jesus instructs them to purchase from him this eye ointment that will help them to see. What is this? This is, again, this is a faith that sees what is really there. They need this eye ointment. Their eyes had become infected with their present prosperity, their present spiritual independence that they were fooling themselves with, and they could not see clearly. They had an infection in their eyes that needed to be cleared up with spiritual eye ointment so they could see what was really going on with their spiritual condition and what really mattered in life. What really mattered in life was Jesus Christ in a relationship with Him and a firm and solid witness, and they were blind to that. They were lacking in their faith. That's why I suggest that each one of these refer specifically specifically to their faith. Had their faith been strong in, re, when, in relying upon Jesus rather than relying upon themselves and their affluence, then they would have been able to stand as a strong witness. Now, this word from Jesus is not novel, is it? This warning from Jesus, it's not novel. Matthew 6, Jesus talks about this, the way that Riches can blind the eyes to spiritual realities. It's Matthew 6, 22 through 23. This is something that's discussed often in the New Testament. This ability, like in Matthew 13, talking about the weeds that grow up and choke out the word, the weeds of the deceitfulness of riches. The ability for affluence to start to blind the eyes of, from spiritual realities. Jesus has spoken about this before in the Gospels, and he's bringing it to their attention here again. And it's vital for us to recognize it. Is this a call to voluntary poverty? No, it's not. The poor person can love money just as much as the rich person can. The poor can be blinded by the pursuit of wealth just as much as the rich person who's already achieved it. But it is a warning, here it is, it is a warning consistent with the rest of the New Testament to be on guard with how financial abundance can lead to a spiritual pride and in a spiritual independence from Christ. And we must be careful that such a temptation doesn't overtake us and create in us an ineffective witness. That's the warning. It's a warning that comes all the way through the New Testament and is given even here in this last letter to the churches. Again, is this a call to take on voluntary poverty as though that is somehow more spiritual than being wealthy? No. Scripture recognizes that there will be wealthy Christians. There are wealthy Christians in our midst. There are wealthy Christians in America. There are wealthy Christians throughout the world. The, the warning, however, is to not let that present state of abundance create in you a spiritual independence where you say, whether under your breath or overtly, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing. And you begin to drift away from your dependence upon Jesus Christ. 
whom you need every moment of every day. Why does Jesus, when he is asked, how do we pray? Why does Jesus make a primary component of prayer praying for our daily bread, praying for provision? Many of us have cars in the garage and money in the bank and food on the table. When's the last time you've prayed, God, would you please make sure that there's food in the refrigerator? Will you please provide me for what I need? Well, Jesus gives us an encouragement in verse 19. He says, he gives the church at Laodicea an encouragement. He gives an encouragement to us. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Again, this is another reason why I don't see Jesus saying, would that you were either cold or hot, as a reference to them either being fully on board with him or, or just jumping ship completely. Why? Because he's telling them, I love you and I want you to repent. That's why I'm giving you this hard word. And have you ever had a conversation with someone where you had to confront them and you didn't have anything good to say about them or their present situation? You couldn't preface the conversation with, with something positive and you just had to get right to the rebuke? And then you realize, I probably should tell them that I love them because this is really hard. Well, again, Jesus is counselor par excellence. He doesn't forget. He knows exactly how to handle this church and he reminds them of his love for them. The reason why they are receiving this hard word, it would, be, it would have been a very sharp word. It would have had to create many decisions among that congregation uh, about whether or not they were going to participate in these trade guilds anymore or what they were going to do about their financial situation or how they were going to renew their relationship with the Lord. It would have been a very sharp word to them. And Jesus is saying, it's not arbitrary. I'm not just venting on you. This is so that you would repent. I want you to be, and here it is in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I want you to be renewed in your communion with me. This language of eating, all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, this language of eating has to do with communion. Who do you eat with? You eat with your friends. You eat with your family. You eat with people you love and enjoy. There's something very intimate and, and special about eating together. Why is it that what Jesus assigned to the church as one of its ordinances is the taking of a meal together? Why is it when Paul is, is, gets up in arms that there's a possibility that the Corinthians are actually eating at idol worship ceremonies? Because eating means something. It means something intimate. And Jesus is saying here, if you hear my voice and open your door, in other words, if you repent... I will come in and eat with you. I will have communion with you again. The, the call is for this church to renew their communion with Jesus Christ. They have been fooled into embracing temporary pleasures and temporary wealth as the, as the end all, and they are missing out on the sweetest thing available, and that is communion with Jesus Christ. The eating and drinking with Christ. And he is calling them to it. So let me ask you. I was going to do this at the beginning. I just didn't want to ask too many questions. So, But let me ask you. As you think about a church that is growing in its spiritual independence from Christ, what are the two things that go 
from that church? What are the two disciplines that quickly evaporate? Prayer and the hearing and preaching of the Word of God. When you are spiritually independent, you don't need to pray to Jesus and you don't need to hear from His life-giving Word. You don't need the food of His Word because you have all the food you need in the pantry. The two disciplines to go as an individual and as a church begin to grow in their spiritual independence and lack of, perceived lack of need for Christ is, the, is prayer and the hearing and preaching of the Word of God. And so Jesus is inviting this church back into communion, back into fellowship with Him to see and to taste once again the riches and the glory and the beauty of Him in His Word, to feed upon that Word, to say along with Jesus that it's the will of the Father, it's, it's, our very food is to do the will of the Father, and to say along with Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, that man does not bre- live by, on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We must be aware the moment that prayer and the hearing and receiving and enjoying of the Word of God begins to evaporate in our lives and in our lives corporately. We want that communion with Christ, and that's what Jesus is calling this church to. He is exhorting them to give up on the temporary and to embrace this communion with Him. Verse 21, however, we need to look at verse 21. He does give this incentive, as the same incentive he's given all throughout to the one who conquers or the one who overcomes elsewhere. This is an incentive, and there's an implied warning here because it's the one who doesn't overcome will not receive this. What does he give them as their incentive here? I will give him or grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down on my, on, with my father on his throne. You remember the last time you heard something similar to that? If you're thinking, yeah, the last time you preached, you would, have, you would be right because Jesus also promises this in the church at Thyatira, something similar. Verse 26 in chapter 2, he says, To the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Here's a similar thing. Jesus is promising future universal rulership with him. And you have to ask. I asked this. I, it just, it just, I had to ask. Why similar incentives for these two churches? And I just have to wonder if it's that economic situation that ties them together. Remember how we talked about in Thyatira, there's likely that there was this need to bolster your economic situation or at least secure it through this compromise by worshiping at these trade guild ceremonies, these um, false deity ceremonies. And I suggested to you that week that Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to inherit everything. You're going to be ruling over everything you're going to be king over everything, so you don't need to, to grasp at your inheritance now. Could it be also that Jesus is saying something similar here, answering this temptation to grasp at 
economic inheritance by saying, listen, there's, a, there's an inheritance coming. You will rule with me and you will have everything at your disposal. No need to compromise now in order to get some sort of temporary riches. Remain strong. You may have to lose everything. I had the opportunity to do a little Bible study at Google this last week. And the question was, how do you remain salt and light in the workplace? And before you can start talking about practical ideas about how you might do that, all of which are great, you must first talk about where Jesus says in Luke 14 that you must renounce everything to be his disciple. Because it's right after that that he begins to talk about saltiness. In order to remain salty, in order to maintain that true and faithful witness, CBC, individually and corporately, must be willing to renounce everything for Jesus. Because that which you are unwilling to renounce will be that which you will hold on to when the going gets tough. And you will compromise your witness and you will back off when loss is imminent. Similar situation happening in Laodicea. In order for us to maintain our faithful and true witness along with alongside of our Savior, who is the faithful and true witness par excellence, we must see with this new eyes, this eye ointment that opens our eyes up to our, in, our future inheritance as those who will sit with Jesus on his throne, ruling everything with him. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as also as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Well, this, I hope, is an encouraging message to you, to the church of Laodicea. It's a sobering message, but it's also an encouraging message. Why? Because Jesus is giving this message to those whom he loves. There may be some of you in here who are in danger of following into a Laodicean pattern. And to you, Jesus calls you to repentance. Why? So you can enjoy something far better than temporal riches. There are some of you who are walking strong regardless of your economic situation and Jesus says to you, excel still more. He says to all of us, to this church, to the church in Laodicea, to this church, and to all those who claim the name of Christ, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's my prayer, and it's the prayer of the elders, that by God's grace, we will be a church that maintains a faithful and true witness that follows after Jesus in this way, that is able to remain strong in, a, in an area of the world that is so hostile to the gospel. And isn't it a coincidence that a place that is most affluent is the place that is most hostile to the gospel. Why? As you talk to people, you, you come to learn you don't need God when you have everything right here or right here or back at home. And so I would pray that as we leave here today even thinking about this message to Laodicea, that we would not let it bypass us, but that we would think seriously about where we are with Christ 
Have we drifted from Him? Have we inculcated a spiritual independence due to our financial independence and use this as a time to repent. He promises that as we do, he will come and he will dine with us. He will fellowship with us. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this hard, sobering word. It's a good word. It's a promising word. We need so much help in this area. It's easy to go off of one extreme or the other. It's, it's easy as sinners to embrace a false humility or a kind of poverty that may appear spiritual but is just as materialistic as the one who pursues wealth with all their heart. God, would you help us navigate these things by your wisdom? Will you make it clear that in our own hearts and our own lives where we might be compromising, will you help us to grasp a hold of those beautiful, wonderful promises of future inheritance, of ruling with you, so that we may not compromise our witness due to fear of loss. God, we need so much help. Jesus, we need your help. Would you please do this work in our midst, both individually and corporately? And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.